morning as we continue our series. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and our volunteers here will get one to you. You're going to need that Bible. And when you get it, go to chapter 2 of Micah. We're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, in chapter 1, we spent some time there. What we found in chapter 1 is that Micah announced God's judgment on their injustices and evils that were happening in that society at that time. What you're going to find in chapter 2 is Micah is going to give them examples of these crimes. Examples. He's going to point to the injustice and the evil that was happening in their midst and explain this is why God is bringing judgment. And what you're going to find back then in Judah, in the capital of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns, is you're going to find an uncanny resemblance to what was taking place back then in that country to what I believe is taking place now in our country. Okay, so I want you to look for that. And I believe if there's any prophet that could prophesy right into the state of America, it is this prophet Micah. And so you're going to see some of these examples pop up right here in chapter 2. So let's give ourselves a scripture this morning. We're just going to look at the first five verses of this chapter, but there's much to be had here. So what you find in the first two verses is Micah charges them with their crimes. Let's pick up in verse 1. Look for it. It reads, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So let's stop there and let's, let's look at those two verses. So we ask the question, what are their crimes? You see right there in verse 2, it says they covet. That's the first crime. And the second one you see right there in verse 2 is they oppress. They covet and they oppress. You see that right there in the verse. What's, ha- what's taking place here is there was a wealthy class of elites back then, like there is now. And that wealthy class of elites, they were stealing homes and properties from the middle class. That's what's taking place. They were illegally calling people on their debts, on their mortgages, if you will, and they were repossessing their homes. And so that's why it says right there in verse 2, they covet fields and they seize them. And houses, they take them away. What you had during this time is not all that different from what we see today in our time. The rich were getting richer, the poor were becoming poorer, and the middle class was being wiped out. This is what's happening in their society, which I think sounds very familiar to what's happening in our own day. To get the significance of this, though, you have to understand how their ancient society was set up. And was set up like this. It was a total agrarian society. So you completely lived off your land. That's how you made it work, okay? You lived off your land. You lived off the crop that you had as a family, and that was your sustenance, not only to feed you, but to also receive some kind of income or some kind of trade in market. So they're totally dependent upon this land that they lived on. Your land and your home were everything to you. Look what it says in verse 2. It says this wealthy class of elites, they coveted their fields and they seized them, their houses, they took them away. And it says what? Then they are oppressing a man 
and his house. And then it says an interesting uh, point at the end, a man and his inheritance. His inheritance was his land and home that provided for his entire family and then was passed on to the next generation. So in our day, you get married and you leave, right? You know, some, well, things are a bit changing. Sometimes you live with your parents until you're up into your upper 20s and 30s and then you meet that someone and you get married and then you leave, right? And you're off on your own. You're starting your own family, okay? In this time, when you got married, you stayed with your family and you would live on that property and work that land together as one family unit. And then when the parents died, the patriarch and the matriarch, they would pass down that land to the family behind them. And so their inheritance was everything for them. And it says in verse 2 that they were taking that away. If that was stripped away, your land and your home, you were truly left with nothing. And you had no future for you or your family, for you or your kids. It's that serious. It's not like us if we foreclose on our home. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, but there are ways to figure things out. Back then, if your land and your home was taken, you basically became an indentured servant or a sharecropper or an indebted slave. It was really serious. Okay. Now, here's what you need to know. This went against everything that God had set up for his nation. This was totally contrary to God's plan uh, and God's law as he set it up. The Israelites held this belief that the land was God's, that this is God's land. This is his holy land. We call it, when you go on a trip to Israel, we call it, we're going to the holy land. There was this belief that all of this is Yahweh's and he has apportioned it out. He has gifted it and granted it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And what you see in Leviticus is, and in other parts of the Torah is it's very clear on, okay, the tribe of uh, Levi or Manasseh or Judah, you have this land and this is a portion to you and you have this land. It's very particular on the land that God would, would give them. And there's all kinds of property rights that you see written about in the book of Leviticus. What God wanted was a nation of free landholders where there was no debt slaves, no sharecroppers, and no hired workers. He wanted every man and woman, a family, to have their own land, they, that they would be free people under God. That's the kind of nation he had set up. Each family has their own piece of land given by Yahweh. So... You can imagine at this time, it's about 701 BC, when all of this land grabbing is happening and the middle class is being wiped out and they're going against God's law for property and God's vision for a nation of free people under God. You can imagine God's righteous anger against this wicked monopoly of elites that were robbing people of their basic God-given rights. Some call it just business, but God in verse 2 calls it oppression. That's what he calls it. So I want to ask this. What fuels this insatiable appetite to consume more and more according to the Bible? Because that's what you have with these elites. In verse 1, it says they would stay up at night and they would think about 
They would devise, they would plan, they would scheme about this land they were going to take. They wanted more and more and more. There was no end to their appetite to, to consume. And so what does the Bible have to say about this appetite to have more and more? The Bible calls it the sin of coveting. You see it right there in verse 2. They covet fields and seize them. It's the sin of coveting. And you find God's prohibition against this, ten com- against this in the Ten Commandments. He knows that if coveting rules a nation, it will go to ruin. That's how serious it is. And so he put it there in his Ten Commandments. You find this on the screen in Exodus 20. He reads this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The reality is this, friends. I'm fully aware it's Fourth of July weekend. I'm grateful to live in this nation. I'm grateful for the men and women that protect this nation. But I'm also not beholden to this nation. I'm a citizen of heaven first and foremost. And I'm a a son of the kingdom first and foremost, and yet grateful for God's provision in this land, but it doesn't keep me from saying what's true. What's true is this, we have an entire nation built on coveting. We have an entire nation built on breaking the 10th commandment in God's law. There is this insatiable appetite for more. Jesus warns against this appetite many places. I'll just give you one. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. It reads this. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How clear is that? He says, be on guard. Take care. And if there's any word for us in today's modern American culture that we are fully discipled and influenced by, even though we fight it as followers of Jesus, I think it's this. Be on your guard is what it says. Against all covetousness. It's in the air that we breathe in this nation. Paul gives a strong warning to us in the church regarding this as well. You find this in 1 Timothy. Let's take a look at it on the screen. First Timothy six, it reads, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And he gives a warning. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. It's like a, a trap, right? Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's a pretty vivid warning, is it not? He goes on, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, so you have to think about it, it's a craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What imagery? We've seen the last sentence of this verse, verse 10, to be true. I've seen men and women wander away from 
the faith because of this craving to have more at all costs. To you college students that are in the room, you might feel immune to this right now because you're broke and you're just trying to get your exams done. I remember those days. This will come for you. It will. And even adults in the room, if you're in a profession that doesn't allow you to make a lot of money, doesn't mean you're exempt from the craving of covetousness. You're just more frustrated about it because you don't have the power to pull it off. You become bitter and cynical. Right there, the verse, it says, desire to be rich. Where is that? Yeah, right there. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning this question as followers of Jesus Do you desire to be rich? Do you find this craving at work in you? Let's offer some help. Let's think practically and biblically. What's the opposite of coveting? It is contentment. Coveting over here, contentment over here. It's the direct opposite. What's the opposite of a life of consumerism? It's opposite of a life of simplicity. So you have coveting and consuming, and then you have a life of contentment and of simplicity. And this lifestyle of simplicity is what you find Jesus living in the Gospels and also prescribing to us. I want to show you in Luke chapter 16 what Jesus has to say. He gets to the, well, he's actually in the middle of a parable about this. And he says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he makes a blanket statement. You cannot serve God and money. Just try. And you'll see it doesn't work. You find the same kind of lifestyle in Paul, that lifestyle of simplicity, 2 Corinthians 1. He's reflecting on his life as a follower of Jesus. And he says this, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but in the grace of God and supremely so toward you. What you don't find in Micah is you don't see this contentment nor simplicity with the Israelite elites that Micah is prophesying against. Look, at, look back at verse 1 right there in Micah. It says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. So at nighttime, when the morning dawns, they perform it, what they've been scheming about, because it's in the power of their hand. This means they can't even sleep at night. That's what Micah is saying. They can't even sleep at night. They're so consumed with a hunger for more. More stuff for this craving that Paul warns about in 1 Timothy Six. And so God decides to put a stop to their oppression of the middle class and the lower classes and bring about his justice. You find this in verse three. So he calls them on their crimes, verse one and two. And then verse three, he says what the Lord is going to do. Take a look. Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord. Behold, against this family, I, as God, am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. What this means is just as they schemed in the night, planning evil against their neighbors, Yahweh has also been awake, planning evil against them. That's what's happening in these verses. Notice the word that it uses right there. It says the word devise. God says, I am devising disaster. That means God is not haphazard in his judgment, but rather takes his time, issues his warnings, plans his actions. He devises. God does not fly. God never flies off the handle in a rage. That's not what God's wrath means or God's judgment means. Punishment here, the punishment God plans, always fits the crime. It goes like this. As they stole land, it will now be stolen from them. That's what God is saying. He has the Assyrian army on the border about to take their land. And he's telling these Israelite elites, as you stole land from people, it will now be stolen from you. God's judgment and God's punishment always fits the crime. They targeted innocent victims, but God targets them as far from innocent as guilty criminals. It reads there in the verse, it says, you shall not walk haughtily, meaning they've been forcing poorer people under their dominance as the ruling class. And so they will now be forced under the Assyrians' dominance. As they invade. When God brings judgment, when God brings punishment, when God brings discipline, it always fits the issue or the crime. You have to understand that. In verse 4, you find their response to this invasion that's about to take place. God says, This is what's going to come out of your mouth. In verse 4, In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly. And say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. This means that just as they had changed the land portions of their victims. The Assyrians will now divide up their land against amongst themselves. Lastly, just to get through the passage in verse 5. This is saying that when Yahweh takes back the land from the Assyrians, when the the period of judgment is complete upon God's decision, then these Israelite oppressors will not have any property redistributed and given back to them. Look at verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the lot, to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This means that these People will no longer be a part of God's nation, these oppressive elites that won't be a part of God's kingdom. You see Paul echo the same reality in Ephesians when he says this. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that's our word for the day, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience.
So let's stop there. You understand what's going on, right? We've laid that out. You see what's happening in the nation, what God is saying against it. This was 701 BC. Uh, And so we asked this question. What do we take from this for our own day? What happened then and what God was doing and what God did, what do we take from this? What can we learn about God here? What does this tell us about God? I believe it's this. We see here in history God's real reaction in real time to covetousness and reckless consuming. This is not a theory of how God feels about it. It's not a notion. It's not an idea. It's not feeling or a thought. It is history. It is real. It is what happened. It's what God actually did against their covetousness. I think we have to sit with that. I think we have to reckon with that. That this is God's response to that kind of attitude and that kind of living. Could similar crimes not be charged against this nation? Could similar divine judgment not be announced against this nation? That being the case, I think we have to ask ourselves in the church, us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are we contributing to this nation's sin? Are we personally, as an individual, as a family, are we contributing to this nation that we live in, to their sin of covetousness? Are we just as consumed by consumerism as the average American? We have to ask that question. We have to search ourselves. I believe you answer that question by answering this one. A to B kind of question. Do you covet your neighbor's things? That's how you get to the heart of it. Do I? I've been asking myself this question all week. Do I covet my neighbor's things, the people around me? Do I find my heart going in that direction? Do I find my mind contemplating what I don't have and what I really want to have and how I can get it? Do I always have the Zillow app open looking for a better home? Do I always have Amazon open looking for better stuff? Do I always have Instagram open craving what other people don't have? It's one thing for our heart to be in that place. It's a whole other thing to set up a career to take those things at the detriment of others. That's what happened in Micah. I want to make that distinction very clear. It says in verse 1, they had the power in their hand to do it. And so they did. But the question for us as Christians is, do I covet my neighbor's things? I think this all comes back to the ongoing lifestyle question of how do we live in the world but not be of the world? How do we be in the world? That's what Jesus says. We're to be in the world, but not be of the world. I think that is the question of our time. That's the question that I think Danielle and I go back to often 
as we're just walking through life, as we're raising our kids, how do we do this? How do I have this thing? You know me well, I, 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 I have a tug of war with technology. It's so helpful, and yet it can be so detrimental. I have the whole world at my fingertips. How do I live with this thing in a responsible Christ-like way? These are the questions we need to be asking ourselves as a community following Christ. How do I be in the world, but not of the world? Or think of it this way. What does it really mean to have my citizenship in heaven? That's what it says in Philippians 3.20. What does it mean to have my citizenship in heaven and not in this world? How does that really work, Lord? How do I do that? How do we do that as a community? I think at the heart of it, to have our citizenship in heaven, I think it's about our identity. It means that our identity is different than every other unbelieving coworker, friend, family member, or neighbor that you interact with each day. If they're not united to Christ and following Christ, they don't have a citizenship in heaven. They don't have a passport in heaven. You do. And so most of the folks in general that you interact with every day, your identity, who you are, by God, is different. So how do we live into that difference? The Christian identity, according to the Bible, it calls it this. It says you are an exile and a sojourner in this world. That's the language it uses in the New Testament. An exile and a sojourner. Take a look. You find it in 1 Peter. Peter opens his letter and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he goes on, you see sojourner, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What's an exile? What's a sojourner? Exile is a stranger and foreigner to where they currently live. So it's talking about you. Not someone over there, not someone back there. It's talking about you. You're a foreigner in this world. You're a foreigner in this country. It's not where you're from, according to God, from his perspective. This is not your native home. This is not your native culture. Is how the Bible thinks about it. An exile, a sojourner, is simply passing through this land to their true homeland. That's what it means to be a sojourner. It means we're sojourners and exiles in the United States of America. That doesn't mean you're anti-American. That doesn't mean that you're ungrateful for the blessings uh, and the provisions that we have in this nation. Doesn't mean you don't vote or engage. That's not at all what the Bible is saying. I didn't see any of those words. It's talking about your identity. You're in exile, sojourner. You're a foreigner passing through this nation to our heavenly homeland. What is your ultimate home? It is heaven. It is the kingdom of God. And you're passing through this on your way there. That's your homeland. You see this idea in Hebrews 11. Take a look. It's on the screen. It says this. 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it, as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want to state two obvious things here about being a sojourner in exile. Number one, this is far more difficult to identify with, 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 with folks that are rich, folks that have money, folks that have means. It's far more difficult to identify as a sojourner, as an exile. Second obvious thing I want to state is this. We're rich. You're rich. College students, you'll get there. You're rich. You compare ourselves to the majority of the world, us in America, for the most part, maybe I shouldn't use a blanket statement, for the average American in the room, we're rich. Because of that, we can often find ourselves content in this world. Those that are suffering, those that are oppressed, those that are poor in our nation and the nations around the earth that are followers of Jesus, it's so much more natural and easy for them to long for that home where they'll be well and cared for and in the presence of God. But for us, that it's Often, because of our wealth and because of our means, it's easy to be content in this world and not identify with how God identifies us as a stranger to here, a foreigner of this place, an exile, a sojourner who's passing through here and going home. But the Bible addresses us rich Christians. Christians of this nation in the following way. You see it in 1 Timothy 6. It's the second part of that passage I read earlier. This is helpful for us. It's practical instruction. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's a great word. They, as us, are to do good. You are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. I love that. It's like investing language. It's not... Investing necessarily in this present age, but it's investing in our future, in heaven, in the new heavens, in the new earth. It says this, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When I read the New Testament, there's this one truth that stands out so clearly when it comes to this kind of conversation. And it's a truth that I think we can never forget. It's this, because of Christ, because of what he has done for us, you are a citizen of heaven quickly passing through this passing world. 
Everything you see around you will one day be gone. It will. And we will live in a totally different reality called the kingdom of heaven. And so while you briefly live here, be sure, Christian man or Christian woman, that God will give you all that you need. He will. And then all the rest give to the kingdom. That's how we're to live. Store up for yourselves, as it says, treasures in heaven. Invest in a foundation in the future by being generous and available and giving. Sow into his church. Sow into kingdom mission and project. Sow into those things. The Bible is giving us advice on how to handle our stuff. He's saying, you're here for a short time. You're there forever. Invest in that. Jesus says it over and over. You'll have rewards in heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying live a certain way now so that you can live a certain way forever in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but I think we're so short-sighted in our vision. We're so just right here. Think of what it says in Colossians 3, right? Set your mind on things above, not simply on things that are on the earth. We're so short-sighted in our vision of our life. And what I've been praying is God just expand my vision to what is yours. And let me see beyond this life into the next. And let me see what matters here. And it's not this life doesn't matter, but what I have to do and to invest in here. But show me what's going to be forever. And I want to put my time and my energy and my heart into that. His kingdom is the one thing that eternally matters. It is the one thing that will be left standing in the end. And so to set our lives on anything else is simply foolish. Here's the closing question to ask in light of all this truth. I want to bring this to an application. The big question today is this. How do we as Christians battle covetousness and consumerism as wealthy Christians in this foreign land called America. How do we do it? And I think you find a key to it right there as I referenced in Colossians 3. Colossians 3. It reads this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, Christian, on things that are above. Not on things that are on earth. For you have died. That'll change your life. You have died according to the Bible. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's saying set your mind on heaven daily. And you'll find yourself naturally, when you expand your vision beyond just right now, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things eternal. When you do that, you'll find yourself seeking first the kingdom and not just stuff. That's what happens in the life of a Christian. 
Think of it this way. Before you make a daily decision, pause and ask yourself, what's the right decision to make here in light of heaven? That's how you practically do it. That's how you set your mind on things above. In light of the kingdom of heaven, what's the right decision to make here? What's the right approach? Should I say yes? Should I say no? Should I invest? Should I give time? Should I not? The logic of scripture is this. That if we suffer and endure now in this world as his disciples, so that we can reign later with him forever in his kingdom. And so I want to end by helping you set your mind on that heavenly future. Okay? I'm going to end by giving you, and we're just going to rattle them off. This is, think of it like a meditation. That's how I want to end. Let's meditate on God's word. I want to end by giving you seven real things that are waiting for you in heaven. You got that? These are seven real things, according to scripture, that are waiting for you, the follower of Jesus, in heaven. Okay? And so I just want you, I just want to let these seven things build you up and build up your ability to set your mind there. The first one, and there's a scripture promise attached with each one. The first one is this. There is a kingdom waiting for you, according to Jesus' words. There's a kingdom waiting for you. Look what it says in Matthew 25. This is Jesus speaking. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That's the word for you. From the foundation of the world. Second thing is there are treasures waiting for you. Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in. And steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Third thing, there is an inheritance waiting for you. You should be uh, eager and excited and anticipating these promises. There's an inheritance waiting for you. First Peter one four to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you there are two things that have your name on it in heaven one is the book of life those that are true followers of jesus it says your name is written in the book of life the other thing that has your name on it right now according to this verse is your inheritance there's an inheritance for katie waterworth right there's an inheritance for abby there's an inheritance for Matt and Laura Perkins, there's an inheritance that has your name on it. It says that it's waiting for you in heaven. I can't wait to see what that is. Number four, there is glory waiting for you. Romans 8 says this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And he says something very bold. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a glory waiting for you. So, I, so here's my prayer. God, on Tuesday, 
when I'm caught up in all the things that I'm doing that you want me to do, I'm called to do them, right? But I'm so locked in to this moment. God, expand my vision. Show me the glory that's waiting for me in heaven. Remind me, help me set my mind on that inheritance. When something difficult comes up, a kind of suffering, help me lean into the hope of heaven in the next life promised because of Christ. Put my mind there, put my heart there. I believe that if I do that, I'll live, I'll live differently now, here. The fifth thing that's waiting for you is it says there's a home waiting for you. John 14, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The sixth thing is this. There is a peace waiting for you, a peace like you've never tasted on earth. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away. Look at the personal language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I cannot wait to be there in that reality with God. Can you imagine it? The last thing is this. There is God your Father waiting for you. Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And so we end by praying this. Lord, help us to set our minds on the things that are above. Lord, help us right now any of us in this room, our minds and heart have been so set on temporal things. Whoever that is in this room, just in your own heart, confess that to the Lord now. And so caught up in the things around me. Lord, we just pray that you would change us. God, that you would get us in your word to meditate and to expand. God, I pray for the gift of revelation over this community, that you would open things to us that we've never seen before, that you would open places in our hearts to, 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 to come under the reality of your word, God, that you would break open a joy and a hope in you and in your kingdom that we've never touched or tasted before. 
God, we come to you this morning and we're hungry for more, but a heavenly more. God, help us to be spiritually minded, as the Bible says. Help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Help us to take on that identity as an exile and a sojourner. Help us to be different, Lord. Help us to embrace our uniqueness in you. We invite all of that, God. We invite only what you can do to shape us and mold us into true citizens of the kingdom. God, I ask for an unusual generosity to come out of this fellowship. I ask for an unusual boldness. I ask for an unusual faith and fearlessness to come out of this community. God, grow us. Conform us into the image of Christ. We give our minds and hearts to these things this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.